The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Now might be the time for wild military industrial complex theories. And here's one. I don't know, maybe they just fired the missile by mistake. Welcome everyone. It is Thursday, January 23rd, 2020. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. I don't for a moment believe that the firing of Iran's missiles which downed Flight 752 and killed all 176 people on board was a mistake. It was intentional, calculated, and above all, strategic, completely consistent with the long-term intentions and objectives of that totalitarian regime. Now you might ask, how can I possibly know this, given all the uncertainties, a lack of facts, the fake news, the blame being hurled from one side against another, and a whole host of competing narratives and accounts of what is being called everything from an accident to an act of war, an act of terrorism, or simply a tragedy caused by an unfortunate confluence of events. Well, by the end of our show today, you'll understand why I feel relatively confident in arriving at my own conclusions and narrative, and we'll get started right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, and follow us on SoundCloud. Hear us on WBCQ and Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, our archive broadcasts, and of course, where we encourage you to offer your financial support and in so doing, become part of our effort to enlighten others about the true nature of freedom and capitalism. Now, there are two seemingly separate events that are at the center of our discussion today. One, America's drone attack resulting in the death of terrorist Qasem Soleimani. And the second event is, of course, Iran's admitted missile attack against Ukraine International Airlines Flight 752 over Tehran. So to kick off the conversation today with a basic recap of the known and not known facts about this history-making sequence of events, our guest contributor Salim Mansour joins Robert Vaughn, as originally heard, on Just Right's YouTube channel on January 12th. Salim, as the events unfold regarding the downing of Flight 752, the Ukrainian plane carrying uh, many Canadians in Iran, we now know, it has been confirmed, that it was taken down by the Iranian regime. They claim, of course, that it was an accident, but they are liars, they are deceitful, they have no integrity or honor, they have lied in the past, they are a disreputable uh, gang of thugs, and we know that it was not an accident. One does not accidentally shoot down a plane, a passenger plane at 7,000 feet, anybody can discern it to be what it is, even on the ground as a civilian. We know what a 737 looks like in the air at 7,000 feet, it had just taken off from Tehran airport. So it was no accident, it was absolutely deliberate. And the question now is, how should Canada react? Salim? Yes, Robert, the Iranians first denied it, that is the government of Iran came out and the foreign minister, Javad Sarif, denying that Iran had anything to do with the downing or the crash of the Ukrainian airline. 
now we know there were 57 Canadians of Iranian origin on board returning home to Canada who all died in that crash. But subsequently now they have basically admitted that was brought down by a mistaken firing of their air defense missile. There are a whole lot of questions that needs to be answered and, and I hope uh, the Canadian government, at least to the extent that we now know that the Prime Minister uh, has indicated that he's demanding answers in conjunction with the other countries who have had casualties on this. The Ukrainians are yeah, the lead because they're playing that that was brought down. As far as we know, or we have read in the public domain, it was a pretty new plane. It was about three years old and had just yes. gone through a checking out of the plane. So there was no fault on the side of the aircraft. It was directly an act of war in that sense, or, or more precisely, a terrorist act, a state-sponsored terrorist act. Iran is the largest state-sponsored terrorist today in the world. We also saw, and we will wait to see further, the Iranian government's said that it would not be uh, releasing the black box and we have to see whether there will be enough pressure brought upon them to hand over the black box to the international authorities or to the Ukrainian government since the plane belonged to the Ukrainian airline and then we will know even greater certainty what happened. My immediate thought, Robert, was as these news are all unfolding and breaking, was a line right out of Shakespeare. The evil that men do lives after them. With Omar Soleimani dead, President Trump having taken him out, the fingerprint of Omar or Soleimani is all over the place. The, the question remains, why did the Iranian government that controls the air traffic over uh, Iranian airspace allow a plane to take off while this sort of activity was taking place. Well, that's why I'm suggesting, Selim, that it was an absolute deliberate act. They, they definitely let these planes take off, or that plane take off, in order to shoot it down. Otherwise, you would have stopped the air traffic. That only makes perfect sense. It certainly lends credence to the theory that it was absolutely deliberate. Yeah, I mean, if there is if there is some degree of ambiguity, Robert, between the word deliberate and the circumstance, the context within which the plane was brought down, that means there was a military action taking place. We're all operating under a central command. And so allowing the Ukrainian airline to take off was, if not deliberate, a demonstration of total incompetence on the part or of the Or callousness, yes. Oh. Incompetence or callousness. It could also be taken as an indication that this kind of activity in Iran is normal. So perhaps they didn't think that um, this sh warranted a cessation of passenger traffic because they're so callous with, with individual lives. You, you're very right. Incompetence and, in, and callousness which is part of the whole mental makeup of these people mm. and accidents of this nature are bound to happen. And Iran is not the Are you calling it an accident? Uh, uh, no, I mean accident as a result of incompetence and callousness, even if there is no war situation. In this case, there was a war situation, a conflict going on. But in general, and I was driving out that, that these sort of things in the third world do regularly happen. Salim, um, under the Harper government in Canada, he severed all diplomatic relations with Iran for their involvement with the Assad regime in Syria, supporting ISIS and the terrorism abroad. He imposed a trade embargo on Iran. 
Now with the Trudeau government, we've seen an opening up of trade relationships with that theocracy. Under Harper, there was actually a travel advisory to all, all Canadians, don't go to this country. Under Trudeau, we see normal flights in and out of that country by civilians. Should any blame be put on Trudeau and his government for the losses of these Canadian lives by not giving them the proper warning, by letting them think that all, everything is okay between our two nations and they can fly back and forth without any danger? Does he bear any blame? Well, I'm hesitant to now uh, go in the direction of pointing blame at this moment. I mean, uh, the situation is very raw. Um, Perhaps blame is the wrong word. Maybe some sort of responsibility, because it is the responsibility of the Canadian government to protect its citizens uh, in situations like this. Responsibility, yes, in, in, to some extent, because that leads on to the larger context of what has been Justin Trudeau and his Liberal Party's position vis-a-vis -vis Iran. But but again, just to back up, you're, you're very right about the Harper government, but what the Harper government was doing was carrying on. We go back to 1979. Now, it was Prime Minister Joe Clark at that time, the short period that he was the Prime Minister when, when the uh, hostage crisis took place with the seizure of the American Embassy, that the uh, Canadian Embassy and the Canadian Ambassador at that time in, in Tehran uh, helped eight American diplomats to be smuggled out of uh, Tehran. And with the smuggling out of those eight American diplomats, the embassy was closed and it hasn't been reopened. So in, in that sense, uh, maybe we do not have any direct pressure. But I'm holding a letter here in my hand that I just got from this wonderful woman uh, of, of Canadian of Iranian origin who I know in person. Her name is Arjuman Homa. I think I sent that letter to you just before we went on air. Yes, I've read it, yeah. Yeah, so uh, she is part of this coalition of Canadian of Iranian origin and the Iranian diaspora in the Western world calling upon all governments in the West to bring pressure upon their own governments to close down all relationship with Iran, that is to shut down all Iranian embassies wherever they are in the Western world. That would make perfect sense, Salim. If you, if you consider the history of Iran and embassies, they allowed the attack of the American embassy in 79. They um, allowed protesters to attack and invade the British embassy. Um, they, with Soleimani, they just invaded the um, American embassy in Iraq. Nobody should be dealing with these people whatsoever. They should be shunned and ostracized and contained. 100%, uh, that's been my view all, all along, uh, going all the way back to 9-11. Talking about the British, I mean, only, only a couple of days ago, uh, the British ambassador was uh, arrested in Tehran and then subsequently released because he was taking pictures, either he himself or some, some people in the British embassy who were taking pictures of the demonstration taking place in Tehran. I mean, we are not getting as much news outside of Iran because it's a highly controlled, it's a totalitarian regime, and the news is, is just seeping out, but we're not getting as, as for instance, from Hong Kong, we were, we were watching the demonstration in Hong Kong that had been taking place in recent time. 
that the Iranian Iranian public has been demonstrating, has been opposing this regime for a very long time. It's not only recently, but in recent recent months, these have escalated. I mean, this was the 40th year of the Iranian regime, and these are escalating. I mean, it's getting stronger and deeper and wider. The demonstration in the month of November, there were demonstrations right across Iran in all of the Iranian cities. Something like 5,000 Iranians were arrested by the regime and over 1,500 Iranians were shot and killed uh, under order of Qasem Soleimani and his Quds Force soldiers. So uh, Iranians are defying this heavy-handed, absolutely brutal repression that has been taking place. And what, what we should be doing, what the West should be doing collectively, that is all the governments of the Western countries, but in particular, the NATO countries, as members of the North American Treaty Organization and Alliance, and Canada is one of the founding members, we should be doing is tightening up and joining uh, President Trump and the Americans in tightening up the sanctions and the embargoes on Iran. No trade. In fact, shutting down everything to do with Iran till the Iranian regime is brought down, is collapsed. And, and there is a regime change, not by Americans or NATO forces doing what happened in Libya, you know, from the outside, but from the inside, and then let the Iranian people re-establish their own regime according to their own values and their own interests and so on and so forth. I should add to that a corollary. Our government should be sending out a clear message, this is a moment, that we are going to go forward and achieve full independence of our own energy needs in terms of fossil fuel, you know, remove all the restrictions that this government has artificially placed on the basis of this bogus climate change argument and the bogus Paris Accord that this government, Justin Trudeau, has bought into. Uh, scrap that, open up, build the pipelines, and, and, and make it absolutely clear that Canada just as the United States is now under President Trump, will have no dependency on oil coming from the Gulf, uh, and in particular, uh, Iranian oil. And we will be self-sufficient, and with the Americans, in fact, we'll become a net exporter of fossil fuel. That, sh that should be a clear message that will deter it. So that will feed into this whole argument that I have basically uh, written and, and talked about, uh, as I said, since 9-11. What was required, what was needed, is a policy of containment that happened when, after the end of Second World War, when uh, the Western European government, led by the United States, uh, brought down a policy of containing the Soviet Union, a policy of containment that eventually led to the collapse of the Soviet Union. We should not have been in any way bargaining, negotiating, trading, or showing any sort of flexibility to accommodate and appease Iran since 1979. I mean, that was an act of war that had begun by the hostage-taking and, and seizure of the American embassy. And in, in that sense, I think, you know, our lack of responsibility has been one of trying to accommodate and appease a, a renegade regime like the Iranian regime or the North Korean regime 
who should be completely marginalized and be told that, that, you know, you have no place in a civilized world. You know, we are not going to have any conversation, any dialogue, any, any truck or trade with you guys. We will leave you alone and we'll see that your regimes wither and die. And that should be our position. And I think after this incident that has happened, that policy should be not debatable. I mean, the question should be, what will be the means by which we bring about that situation? As if he were sitting and listening into that exchange between Robert and Salim, here is U.S. President Donald Trump speaking to America on January 8th, the morning following the ballistic missile attack on Iraq. And remember, this speech was delivered before Iran's shooting down the Ukrainian airliner. As long as I'm president of the United States, Iran will never be allowed to have a nuclear weapon. Good morning. I'm pleased to inform you the American people should be extremely grateful and happy. No Americans were harmed in last night's attack by the Iranian regime. We suffered no casualties. All of our soldiers are safe, and only minimal damage was sustained at our military bases. Our great American forces are prepared for anything. Iran appears to be standing down, which is a good thing for all parties concerned and a very good thing for the world. No American or Iraqi lives were lost because of the precautions taken, the dispersal of forces, and an early warning system that worked very well. I salute the incredible skill and courage of America's men and women in uniform for far too long, all the way back to 1979 to be exact. Nations have tolerated Iran's destructive and destabilizing behavior in the Middle East and beyond. Those days are over. Iran has been the leading sponsor of terrorism and their pursuit of nuclear weapons threatens the civilized world. We will never let that happen. Last week, we took decisive action to stop a ruthless terrorist from threatening American lives. At my direction, the United States military eliminated the world's top terrorist, Qasem Soleimani. As the head of the Quds Force, Soleimani was personally responsible for some of the absolutely worst atrocities. He trained terrorist armies, including Hezbollah, launching terrorist strikes against civilian targets. He fueled bloody civil wars all across the region. He viciously wounded and murdered thousands of U.S. troops, including the planting of roadside bombs that maim and dismember their victims. Soleimani directed the recent attacks on U.S. personnel in Iraq that badly wounded four service members and killed one American, and he orchestrated the violent assault on the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad. In recent days, he was planning new attacks on American targets, but we stopped him. 
Soleimani's hands were drenched in both American and Iranian blood. He should have been terminated long ago. By removing Soleimani, we have sent a powerful message to terrorists. If you value your own life, you will not threaten the lives of our people. As we continue to evaluate options in response to Iranian aggression, the United States will immediately impose additional punishing economic sanctions on the Iranian regime. These powerful sanctions will remain until Iran changes its behavior. In recent months alone, Iran has seized ships in international waters, fired an unprovoked strike on Saudi Arabia, and shot down two U.S. drones. Iran's hostilities substantially increased after the foolish Iran nuclear deal was signed in 2013. And they were given $150 billion, not to mention $1.8 billion in cash. Instead of saying thank you to the United States, they chanted death to America. In fact, they chanted death to America the day the agreement was signed. Then Iran went on a terror spree, funded by the money from the deal, and created hell in Yemen, Syria, Lebanon, Afghanistan, and Iraq. The missiles fired last night at us and our allies were paid for with the funds made available by the last administration. The regime also greatly tightened the reins on their own country, even recently killing 1,500 people at the many protests that are taking place all throughout Iran. The very defective JCPOA expires shortly anyway and gives Iran a clear and quick path to nuclear breakout. Iran must abandon its nuclear ambitions and end its support for terrorism. The time has come for the United Kingdom, Germany, France, Russia, and China to recognize this reality. They must now break away from the remnants of the Iran deal, or JCPOA. And we must all work together toward making a deal with Iran that makes the world a safer and more peaceful place. We must also make a deal that allows Iran to thrive and prosper and take advantage of its enormous untapped potential. Iran can be a great country. Peace and stability cannot prevail in the Middle East as long as Iran continues to foment violence, unrest, hatred, and war. The civilized world must send a clear and unified message to the Iranian regime. Your campaign of terror, murder, mayhem will not be tolerated any longer. It will not be allowed to go forward. Today, I am going to ask NATO to become much more involved in the Middle East process. Over the last three years, under my leadership, our economy is stronger than ever before, and America has achieved energy independence. These historic accomplishments change 
our strategic priorities. These are accomplishments that nobody thought were possible. And options in the Middle East became available. We are now the number one producer of oil and natural gas anywhere in the world. We are independent, and we do not need Middle East oil. The American military has been completely rebuilt under my administration at a cost of $2.5 trillion. U.S. armed forces are stronger than ever before. Our missiles are big, powerful, accurate, lethal, and fast. Under construction are many hypersonic missiles. The fact that we have this great military and equipment, however, does not mean we have to use it. We do not want to use it. American strength, both military and economic, is the best deterrent. Three months ago, after destroying 100% of ISIS and its territorial caliphate, we killed the savage leader of ISIS, al-Baghdadi, who was responsible for so much death, including the mass beheadings of Christians, Muslims, and all who stood in his way. He was a monster. Al-Baghdadi was trying again to rebuild the ISIS caliphate and failed. Tens of thousands of ISIS fighters have been killed or captured during my administration. ISIS is a natural enemy of Iran. The destruction of ISIS is good for Iran. And we should work together on this and other shared priorities. Finally, to the people and leaders of Iran, we want you to have a future and a great future, one that you deserve, one of prosperity at home and harmony with the nations of the world. The United States is ready to embrace peace with all who seek it. I want to thank you, and God bless America. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Now, in light of what we just heard from Trump, does anyone still have any doubts that Iran's downing of the Ukrainian plane was not fully intentional and calculated? As long as he's president, Iran will never be allowed to have a nuclear weapon. And he refers to 1979 as a time since nations have tolerated Iran's destructive and destabilizing behavior, declaring that those days are over. Trump apparently recognizes the significant sequence of events that can be said to be a cause of the circumstances we see today. And, of course, he says that he will immediately impose additional powerful economic sanctions until Iran changes its behavior. Well, from Iran's point of view, this is waving a red flag in front of a hostile beast. And consider these points and observations. As reported by the Hoover Institution's Neal Ferguson in the Globe and Mail on January 6th, under the heading, Iran is too weak to start a world war. Quote, Mr. Trump and his advisors knew when they took the decision to launch an airstrike on General Soleimani that there would be reprisals. There will be. On Friday, Mr. Khamenei tweeted the hashtag, Severe Revenge, Stand By for Attacks by Iranian Forces and their Shia proxies on U.S. personnel as well as against U.S. allies all over the Middle East. 
Iran is in dire economic straits, largely because of U.S. sanctions, which the Trump administration tightened last year. The country's beleaguered rulers gambled that they could force the U.S. to relax sanctions by exerting force, in the belief that Mr. Trump would not risk war in an election year. Wrong. The U.S. may now face pandemonium in Iraq, but Iran will not necessarily be the beneficiary. End quote. So given the declared intentions of both Donald Trump and Khomeini, why would anyone pretend that the downing of Flight 752 was an accident or the result of incompetence? The circumstances surrounding Flight 752's downing are telling. There were no Americans on the plane, thus giving no cause for Donald Trump to declare this an attack on Americans. There were Canadians on the plane, those who would be described by Iran's government as U.S. allies, particularly given that it was Canadians who rescued American hostages from their embassy in Tehran way back in 1979, the very year in which Canada abandoned its Iranian embassy there, never to be reopened to this day. It's also the year cited by Donald Trump as the year in which Iran's intolerant behaviors became tolerated by the West. And as was threatened by Khomeini himself, the plane was shot down in the Mideast, on Iranian soil no less, making any objective international investigations of the incident difficult, if not impossible, and keeping the whole matter in the control of Iran itself. It's a brilliant strategy for a weak nation to get back at a powerful one. So to call Iran's leadership stupid or incompetent in this regard is underestimating the intelligence often required by the evil that men do. Robert and Salim entertained the idea that Iran's actions could be the result of an accident arising out of incompetence and callousness. Again, that's always a possibility. But is it a probability? I think not. After all, it is exactly what I think Iran's leaders would want the rest of the world to think. This allows Iran to claim plausible deniability which, as described by Wikipedia, further supports my contention that Iran's actions were deliberate and calculated. Plausible deniability is the ability of people, typically senior officials in a formal or informal chain of command, to deny knowledge of or responsibility for any damnable actions committed by others in an organizational hierarchy because of a lack of evidence that can confirm their participation, even if they were personally involved in or at least willfully ignorant of the actions. In the case that illegal or otherwise disreputable and unpopular activities become public, high-ranking officials may deny any awareness of such acts to insulate themselves and shift blame onto the agents who carried out the acts as they are confident that their doubters will be unable to prove otherwise. The lack of evidence to the contrary ostensibly makes the denial plausible, that is, credible, though sometimes it merely makes it unactionable. And by the way, having heard a lawyer knowledgeable about international affairs comment on this situation, I learned that there is no real legal mechanism with which to hold rogue nations accountable for injustices and atrocities like downing a passenger plane. It's uncharted territory, but very much a charted terror story that is told over and over again by tyrannical societies. Let's briefly review some of the other relevant factors that we do know about Iran and must take into account when attempting to determine the truth behind its intentions and actions. Iran is a tyranny. Its people are the victims of that tyranny. 
Iran is a sponsor of terrorism. The whole world knows this and acknowledges it. Iran has declared death to America over and over again throughout my entire lifetime and beyond. Iran has made known its intentions to wipe Israel off the map. I mean, what kind of supposed civilization would even dare to utter such an obscenity? Totalitarian nations cannot coexist with free nations. The hatred of Israel and America reflects a hatred of the good for being the good. Iran is a theocracy, one specifically based on political Islam, which is utterly incompatible with either freedom or democracy. Iran did shoot down Flight 752. Its own government admitted this, though conveniently hiding behind plausible deniability. This also provides a secondary benefit for Iran. It has forced a consciousness of its threats and intentions into the minds of Westerners, particularly Canadians. And by using an argument of causality, namely that Trump caused Flight 752's tragedy, Iran's rulers are hoping that naive and gullible Westerners will buy into this falsehood. And finally, of course, we have to acknowledge that all of the information we base our judgments on comes from the broader media, whose reputation of late has been questionable to say the least. So with all the talk about drone attacks, the real drone that I'm most concerned with is the media's conversational drone that's avoiding the real nature of Iran and its role as a terrorist enabler. Here's Glenn Beck with his January 7th insightful observation about that very phenomenon. Well, it is a good thing we have the media on the case to show us what's really happening in Iran. Martha Raditz, she's an ABC News uh, reporter. She was in Iran and she had just great coverage of what was really going on. Let's listen in. A powerful combination of grief and anger with shouts of death to America echoing through the streets around us. This morning, mourners filling the streets of Iran's capital of Tehran for the funeral of General Soleimani, killed by that U.S. drone strike last week. Aerial images capturing the sea of Iranians, packing the streets to pay tribute to a man revered by many here. Trump made a big mistake. He killed our hero. Soleimani's image everywhere. The impact of his death profound. The crowds are massive and emotional. There are many tears here, many signs with Soleimani's picture on them. But the message is also very clear. These people want revenge. As we made our way through the streets of Tehran, people surrounding us shouting death to America. We will have very hard revenge of Mr. Trump. Inside the funeral service, the emotion just as powerful. The supreme leader of Iran weeping and praying over a coffin draped in the Iraqi flag. Donald Trump said that the press is an enemy of the people. And I didn't like that because I don't like anything that smacks of going against the First Amendment. However, today, I don't think he went far enough. Let's look what the American press is for. 
the American press, many of them, up until the very end, were for Hitler. They were for Mussolini. They were for Stalin. They were for the Russian Revolution. They were against uh, America in the so with the Soviet Union. I grew up in the 70s and 80s. I remember hearing from the press how great the Soviet Union really was. How it was Ronald Reagan who was the real warmonger and was going to get us all killed. Gee, something else happened. I've heard from this press how great Chavez is. I've heard from this press Castro was a hero to his people. I've heard that about Ahmadinejad. I've heard all of the bad things that we did to Iran that, yeah, we did. We put the Shah in and we helped him stay. Should we be involved in other people's countries? No. But wait a minute. Then why is it you have such a hard time? Because that's what they would say. We did all these horrible things all around the world. I agree with you. We should butt out of other people's business. However, why won't you look into what Caramella and everybody else involved in the, uh, the Trump phone call are actually doing in the State Department? Why won't you talk about how the Arab Spring was pretty much run from our Oval Office? How come you didn't have a problem with what happened in Libya? The only time you seem to be for anything is when it means big, oppressive government doing something to the people or to the people of a foreign country because your leader is there. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. And here again are Robert Vaughn and Salim Mansour. There's the flip side of it, you know, I mean, and, and, and this Ukrainian situation had brought this about. The, the left across the Western world, the Democrats and the others further left of the Democrats in the United States, the left in Canada, which is the Liberal Party, the NDP, the Green and all of them. I would say including in some sense the Conservative Party and, and in Europe immediately came out after the taking out of Qasem Soleimani on President Trump's order that this is going to be an escalation, this is going to be World War III, and they have continued, despite what has happened with the bringing down of the Ukrainian airline, saying that all of this is a result of President Trump's decision. I have on hand, for instance, John Kerry, former senator uh, and former secretary of state under Obama, his op-ed in New York Times, where he runs through the talking point of the left, that is the Democratic Party, that the, the situation came about because of President Trump, that he is the one who is responsible. Instead, instead of recognizing, and, and we have to be very clear about this, and Canada has not been, that it was the eight years of appeasement and accommodation that emboldened the Iranians, starting with the Iran deal. And worst of all, that all of these negotiation and deal-making with Iran took place within the rubric or within the organizational setup of the United Nations. I will read you here a passage from John Kerry 
about this matter, the way the former Secretary of State phrases this situation, and I'll come back to what it means. He says, two years later, that is two years after Obama opened the negotiation, that is John Kerry was given the responsibility to open the negotiation in a face-to-face discussion with the Iranian leadership, meeting his counterpart, the Iranian foreign minister. That was in 2013. So 2015, two years later, after intense negotiation, we had an agreement that would be signed by seven nations and endorsed by the United Nations Security Council. Diplomacy had achieved what sanctions alone had not. Iran couldn't have a nuclear weapon during the lifespan of the agreement, and if it cheated, the world was resolved to stop it. This is the key paragraph in his op-ed and the talking point that the United States, by making a deal with Iran, was bringing Iran into the civilized community of nation, you know, by appeasing and accommodating, Iran was going to become a normal actor, as if you get a man-eating tiger become non-man-eating tiger by simply adopting the tiger as a pet. So, in other words, what you're saying, if if I could paraphrase, is that John Kerry and the left have absolutely no understanding of the mentality and the nature of the beast that they're dealing with. You cannot, you cannot have diplomacy with a brutal, mindless uh, machine of death. 100%. Not only a lack of understanding, you know, in a sense, ignoring the actual situation, but also a total lack of understanding of history. I mean, Neville Chamberlain in 1938, going and negotiating, I mean, that whole decade, of 1930s, of trying to, after Hitler came to power in 1933, trying to appease and accommodate the Third Reich, and Hitler held up that famous paper in his hand in 1938. Peace in our time. Peace in our time, and it was only a matter of less than a year that World War II broke out, you know? Uh, and, And people like Winston Churchill was pointing that out over and over and over again. And so there you have it. But the worst thing is, as he's pointing out, the seven countries of the United Nations, these seven countries are the countries charged with keeping peace and security. They are the permanent members of the Security Council. They have the heavy responsibility. I mean, if the United Nations means anything, it means about maintaining peace and security and punishing those countries that abrogate or violate the Security Council resolution or the UN Charter on the issue of peace and security. The United Nations is not about Paris Accord and so on and so forth. You know, this has all evolved over time. So there you have the five members of the Security Council. I mean, two of the members of the Security Council have values that are not the values of a liberal democracy, Russia and China. But this is the World War II alliance. But there you have Britain, France, Germany was added to it, and the European Union. And that's where it is. The Western government, over the past eight years in particular, uh, which was the Obama administration, went around finding whatever they could, in whatever manner they could, while Iranians held tough 
in the terms of their own interest. That means they want to acquire nuclear weapon, and why do they want to acquire nuclear weapons? So that they to destroy they Israel. Be, yeah, the, to deter anybody else to take them out, to take action against them, or and to blackmail other countries. That's exactly what North Korea is doing. That's exactly what, in in a sense, you know, the Pakistanis have been doing in either in their relationship with India or anybody that might want to challenge Pakistan. And and that's exactly what the Iranians want. And that would lead to nuclear proliferation in the Gulf area, where you know, given our situation and domestic situation with our decision on nuclear fossil fuel resources that we have declined to build it up, we would be. And we would continue to be dependent upon oil from and energy from the Persian Gulf area, where once Iran gets the nuclear weapon, Saudi Arabia will seek it, Turkey will seek it, Egypt will seek it, and there we have it. You know, we will be in, in a far more dangerous situation in terms of conflict, not only within the region but being exported outside. So the talking point for the last little while has been and continues to be that this situation ultimately culminating in the bringing down and shooting down of Ukrainian airline goes back to President Trump, his responsibility that he escalated the situation by taking out uh, the second in command military general, as if the second in command military general of a terrorist sponsoring state, Iran, is the same as equating Qasem Soleimani with General Patton or General Douglas MacArthur or General Eisenhower, you know, the sheer absurdity of it. But this is the mindset of the left, that the first immediate reflexive action is to blame ourselves for the problem that is in the countries like Iran, that no, we are responsible. We have created the situation. And there is John Kerry. There is the Democratic Party in the United States. And in Canada, I mean, uh, let's hope that this event will put some steel in the spine of Justin Trudeau. I have my doubts. But you have people like the NDP leader, Jagmeet Singh. His response was immediately after Qasem Soleimani came out, the Americans had escalated and the Americans were on the wrong. And we saw NDP members of parliament joining those people, the left in Canada, along with those Iranians who still maintain the view that Iran is the victim of the Western powers, in particular the United States, having demonstration right across Canada, as you know, on, on, on the night of, of the news that Soleimani came out, denouncing United States, and you had NDP members of parliament joining those demonstrations to denounce it. And Jagmeet Singh, who's a Canadian like me of Indian origin, has, to my knowledge, not been categorical, unambiguous, and very clear in not only denouncing it, but having no truck or trade with those elements of the Sikh population in Canada who were directly involved with the Sikh Khalistanis who brought down, that was a terrorist act that brought down Air India plane in 1985, 35 years ago, which was the worst terrorist act prior to 9-11. Could we call them perhaps at least unwitting fifth columnists, these people in parliament who support our enemies? 
Yeah, I would call the fifth columnist because they have continued to play a double game. They have continued to be appeasement-minded and they have continued to be... Look, it's not only Jagmeet Singh. We saw that with Justin Trudeau traveling to India and in his entourage was a Sikh Canadian or a Canadian of Sikh origin who had been indicted for the attempted murder of a visiting... Indian cabinet minister. And these people, in this case, this particular person and the association of this particular person from British Columbia, the Sikh Canadian, with the people who were involved in bringing down the Air India Boeing 747. I mean, we know them. We know who they are. We know their politics. The Indian government has pointed this out. They're they're organized over here, uh, and they're operating out of here because they support the breakup of India. They support the formation of a Sikh state in India. And here it is. India is a commonwealth country. India is a democracy. And this is our position. And we haven't called them out. Our media hasn't called them out. Uh, and then, and then you have uh, you know the Muslim Brotherhood organization over here. We have people in the Canadian Parliament who are complicit with or supporters or or apologists of the Muslim Brotherhood. That number of Muslim majority countries, such as Egypt, such as the United Arab Emirates, such as Bangladesh have declared to be terrorist organization. And we know they are operating right out of here in Canada. They have infiltrated our society. We have had a number of terrorist actions in Canada, you know, that has taken place, including the attempted penetration and assault on the Canadian Parliament a few years ago by a lone terrorist operative with a Muslim Brotherhood or jihadi or Islamist tendencies. So I think, you know, this is well past the time, Robert, that the Canadian people woke up and demanded a a house cleaning in Canada and demanded stiffer action and stiffer response to such rogue states as the Iranian state under the mullahs. Thank you very much, Salim. Thank you. With more thoughts on the nature of the media's coverage of Iran and Donald Trump, On this side of our upcoming bumper, the True North's Candace Malcolm from her commentary of January 12th. And on the return side of the bumper, Greg Gutfield's January 11th observation as broadcast on Fox News. The way that the press has painted this issue is just really disturbing. This is kind of goes back to like, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So they hate Trump. And then because Iran is like now an enemy of Trump, they think that somehow Iran is an ally. It's just really wrong. So this was a piece that appeared in the Globe and Mail. I know it's an Associated Press piece, but there's just so much about it that really just irks you as wrong. So the headline reads, who is Qassam Soleimani and why is he an icon in Iran? And the piece basically just goes through this very romantic kind of regime-led perspective on this general and they paint him as this sort of martyr and this hero who fought against U.S. interests and who stood up for 
the Islamist interests in Iran. For Iranians whose icons since the Islamic Revolution have been stern-faced clergy, General Qassam Soleimani was a popular figure of national resistance in the face of four decades of U.S. pressure. Soleimani survived the horror of Iran's long war in the 1980s with Iraq to take control of the Revolutionary Guard's elite Quds force responsible for the Islamic Republic's campaigns abroad. And then they basically just tell his life story, including like poetry that he was interested in. There's a couple of lines of poetry, and they're kind of just painting Trump as this evil figure. And then somehow, you know, these these poor Iranians are just trying to fight back and and, and have their own country, which is historically illiterate. The attention the West gave Soleimani only boosted his profile at home. He sat by Khomeini, which is the uh, supreme leader, the Ayatollah of Iran. He sat by Khomeini's side at key meetings. Soleimani's greatest notoriety arose from the seriousness of a war and the rapid expansion of the Islamic State group. Iran, a major backer of Assad, sent Soleimani to Syria several times to lead attacks against ISIS and others opposing Assad's rule. While the U.S.-led coalition focused on airstrikes, several ground victories by Iraqi forces featured photographs of Soleimani leading them without a flak jacket. Soleimani has taught us that death is the beginning of life, not the end of life, one Iraqi militia commander said. So again, just a really kind of weird way to sort of eulogize someone who was a terrorist. Pretty disappointing that the Globe and Mail would run this kind of stuff and that Associated Press would put it out in the first place. Sorry, media. It looks like Iran hates its own government more than it hates us. Instead of burning U.S. flags, what did you see at Sunday's protests in Iran over its government shooting down that airliner? A bunch of Iranians refusing to act the way our media wished they would. Demonstrators refused to walk on American and Israeli flags, while others attacked images of General Soleimani. Yes, as much as they were expected to despise those two countries, it seems they loathe the Revolutionary Guard much more. Video also showed government forces firing live ammo at the protesters. Meanwhile, yet another media narrative implodes. We now learn that Trump authorized the killing of Soleimani seven months ago. Talk about impulsive, erratic, unstable. (laughs) Trump only waited seven months to take the guy out? Clearly he's a maniac crazy on bloodlust. Where's the 25th Amendment when you need it? So once again, the media lies to you about everything. They painted Soleimani as a folk hero, not true. And they repeat the lie that Trump was acting irrationally, part of the madman persona they helped fabricate. It's not true either. Only in America can our media get everything so wrong and still see themselves as the good guys. Enough blame to go around, reads the headline in the National Post on January 15th in a commentary made by Adrian Humphreys. And I quote, Michael McCain, chief executive of Canadian meat giant Maple Leaf Foods, grabbed the limelight, but he was not alone in blaming U.S. President Donald Trump for pushing a domino that went on to knock a passenger jet filled with Canadians out of the sky. U.S. Congresswoman Jackie Speer said the disaster was collateral damage of Trump's provocative saber-rattling. Iran's president, while making arrests, spread the blame, saying the U.S., quote, caused such an incident to take place, end quote. 
Twitter users, of course, furiously apportioned blame to Iranian commander Qasem Soleimani for threatening Americans, to Trump for killing him, to Ayatollah Ali Khamenei for retaliating. Others condemned the idiot who fired the missiles that shot down Ukraine International Airlines Flight 752 over Tehran and the airline for continuing to operate. In a sense, they may all be completely right and utterly wrong. There's a difference between causal responsibility and moral responsibility, said Scott Matthews, a professor who studies public opinion and political psychology at Memorial University of Newfoundland. These things are connected causally, but is there a sense in which the president is morally responsible? We tend to think that moral responsibility is about foreseeable consequences of your actions. It is at that level that we decide someone's behavior is blameworthy or creditworthy. With distance, catastrophic events can be traced through layers of cause and effect to find an ever-widening or increasingly obscure antecedent to finger as the reason behind something. There can be an infinite regression, such as is often done for the causes of the First World War. It could be seen as a thought puzzle, except the loss in this incident is so grave and the grief so fresh it is difficult to suggest it is anything approximating a game." End quote. And then there's this item. There is no mistaking the real cause, a letter to the editor written in the London Free Press on January 18th by William O. of London, Ontario. Quote, Whether it was by mistake or on purpose, the shoot-down of Flight 752 would not have happened if U.S. President Donald Trump had not decided to kill that Iranian general. End quote. Well, possibly so. But here's the kicker. Whether William's statement is true or not, it does not prove causality. Causes are not metaphysical realities. They are an epistemological phenomenon. They are the consequence of human thinking, a process of logic assigning purpose, taking action, and bearing responsibility for the consequence. Determining causality is a human construct, a moral imperative. The process is necessary in the determination of justice. In terms of metaphysical causes, there can be no doubt whatever that the missiles which struck both the vehicle in which Qasem Soleimani and Ukraine International Airlines Flight 52, in which 176 people were aboard, were a direct cause of their deaths. That's an observable physical reality. But that reality never answers the question, why? So in the end, we will all have to face the reality that we will never know with certainty the true causes and future consequences of events in the Mideast, or anywhere else for that matter. And let's be clear that I myself have offered no absolute proof that supports my own conclusions about this entire tragedy. All I've presented is an array of evidence, my argument and conclusions, and what I think is the plausible truth. And hey, I could be entirely mistaken, but that's where I have to leave it, other than to say that plausibly, you can join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. It's just common sense. Maybe Islamic State has something to do with Islam? Just a little bit. I mean, it has Islamic in its name. If something... Thank you.
this is going better than it did in Camden. I must, I must tell you. If something were called Nazi Germany, don't you think it had some elements of Nazism to it? Some of you are thinking this is getting pretty offensive. Uh, my grandfather fought for Nazi Germany. Uh, any, any dual citizens in the room? Yeah? Uh, okay. Uh, people ask me, what is the best thing about having been in solitary confinement in the Islamic, in the Islamic Republic of Iran? Uh, you know, the silver lining and that stuff. Um, you know, the great thing about having been interrogated by the notorious Iranian intelligence in a dark, cold, hostile room is that this thing is no longer the scariest experience of my life. <laughs> you can bet the scariest room I ever experienced, it was in Camden. 